front row. Uh oh. All right. If you're tuning in online, leave a comment. Let us know you're there. Which I'm assuming there are a lot of people online that were like, I am not taking these roads on today. Good morning. Is everybody doing okay? Look how you smile when you learn a name and just like, you know, a smile improves your face value. So you, you do that. All right. Okay. So uh, a couple of things I just want to announce real quick. I know you're like, we've already had announcements. That's enough suffering for one day, but just two more. At two o'clock today, Inside Connection is doing a prayer dedication of their new facility. It's at 731 C Street. So two o'clock today, 731 C Street. There's praying over the building. If you want to come join us for that, love to see you there. The other thing is we sent out a link in the email uh, about uh, forming an email group called Build Ordinary Faith. And so it's on, the link is on Facebook. Uh, you, may, you should have received it in your email. If you didn't, that means I don't have your email or you've already blocked me, which is, I get that a lot. So I'm okay with that. But uh, anyway, it, it is on Facebook and Instagram. You can get that link and sign up for that email. The emails will start going out next week. Kind of tell you the story about how Ordinary Faith uh, got to this point with the building and then also help us pray for whatever God has for us. Okay? In order to, to get there, we've got to pray first. So, all right, that's enough of that. And I just wanted to make it awkward. And uh, I feel like I nailed it. Did okay. So, <laughs> today... Um, as Steve said, pointed out, we're, we're talking about love and uh, we want to look at what it means to, to love people in a way that's countercultural. Not, um, not just feelings of love, not just that, oh, I love the whole world, that kind of stuff. Not that at all. But what is love practically and what does God want us to do with that? What's, what does that look like in our lives? Because if, uh, if, if Christ followers could bring love into our relationships, into our world, into our practical connections with other people. It could be a life-changing thing. So I thought it would be good to start with a song. We're not going to sing this because I'm not really a, a Beatles fan, and I'm not going to bash on the Beatles. If you're like, he's going to bash on the Beatles, it's okay. I would never bash on the most beloved band in history. So, <laughs> but I do want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, I do want to do a critic of something, but it's not the Beatles, it's the world that responded to them. And so I, you probably know this song, you're probably going to sing it in your head as I, I go through it, but I don't know if you've ever actually paid attention to the lyrics of It's All About Love, uh, written by John Lennon, or All You Need Is Love, by John Lennon, 1967. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. That's inspiring, isn't it? <laughs> nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. Nothing you can make that can't be made. No one you can save that can't be saved. Nothing you can do, but you can learn how to be you in time. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Now, famous song. You're probably singing in your heads, like, Michael, don't mess with my Beatles. I, I'm not going to mess with your Beatles. I'm going to mess with John Lennon. <clears throat> All right, so. <laughs> A catchy tune, catchy line, all you need is love. But if you listen to the lyrics, there's absolutely nothing in the song of any real substance. It's just, 
It's just nothing you can do that can't be done, nothing you can say. You might as well learn to play the game. There's no real substance to love. And then it declares all you need is love in an age when the world was looking for love and almost exclusively connecting love to sexual encounters at the time in the late 60s. And so in an interview, I just want to I want to show you something. So bear with me. Be patient with me. <clears throat> this is what John Lennon said in the 19- in, in, in an interview, I have this down in 1980, but I, I'm confused. But anyway, so he says, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her, kept her apart from the things that she loved. That was me. I used to be cruel to my woman and, and physically any woman. I was a hitter. I couldn't express myself and I hit and I fought men and I hit women. That's the guy who wrote, all you need is love. His son said, mom was more about love than dad. He sang about it, he spoke about it, but he never really gave it, at least not to me, as his son. And in a later interview, he was quoted as saying this, this is why I'm always about peace, you see. It's the most violent people, I want you to hear this, it's the most violent people who go for love and peace. Everything's the opposite, but I sincerely believe in love and peace. Here's what I want to show you. Here's a guy who knew nothing about love. He wanted to love. He wanted to feel love. But he connected love entirely with an internal emotion that was completely his own. It was completely narcissistic. Completely self-focused. He never understood that what real love is, is how you treat people. How you talk to people, how you respect people, and the things that you do for people. Do I agree with the the fact that all you need is love? Well, if you define love as God, then yes, all you need is love, which I'll get into in just a minute. But I want you to see that there's a world out there that defines the feelings of love separately from the actions of love. And that cannot be us. That cannot be us us. You can walk around and say, oh man, I love the whole world. But if you don't love your spouse, I don't care if you love the whole world, right? If you don't love your kids, your friends, you see what I'm saying? How important it is that love is more than just an ooey gooey, mushy gushy feeling on the inside. It's, it's what you actually do that matters. Because when I feel love, it's usually because someone did something. My wife hugged me or told me that she respected me. One of my sons said something to me that they maybe appreciated me or thanked me for something that I did for them. Someone took an action and that gave me those ushigushi feelings. Michael, stop using ushigushi. Oh no, I'm using it a lot today. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. So I want to begin by thinking about love as an action, about things, thinking of love as the things that you do. It's okay to talk about love, but if we're going to actually love people, we're going to actually do some things. We also should know, and we'll come back to this at the end of the message, that there are some things that pass as love today that are not love. Okay? (laughs) Infatuation and lust, that's not love. That's figuring out how to use somebody. We'll come back to that later. Attraction. An infatuation and attraction might get you to love eventually, 
But lust and using people will never get you to love. Okay? And so we just need to realize that some things aren't love that passes love. They come across in our songs as love. So let's learn about love a little bit. And let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Imitate God. Doesn't that sound like a strange instruction? Mimic God. Imitate God. Do the stuff that God does. That's, I mean, if, if you have no familiarity with the Bible, if this is, you're kind of new to the church gig and you're here today, and I read those words, imitate God, that's kind of a like, that'll trip you up. What, what, is, what does that mean? So bear with me. <clears throat> imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love. Imitate God and live a life filled with love. This is an instruction to followers of Christ. Following the example of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So, imitate God. Live a life filled with love. Follow the example of Jesus. Those are the instructions that Paul gives us. So, what you should conclude, or one of the things that you should at least be getting to form in your mind is this. Loving people, loving others, acting in love is very important to the Christian life. It's not just about learning a lot, filling your head with knowledge. It's about actually loving people and doing things that love people. And so John starts out, I mean, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, imitate God. And John tells us in 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. God is what? Love. love. I just want to see if you're still here. God is love. Think about that for a second. John is telling us, 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. God is the definition of love. You look up in God's dictionary in the kingdom, if you look up love, there's a picture of God. God is love. But that is not most people's conception of God. People don't think of God as love. They think of Him as hard to find, um, benign maybe, not really connected, not involved. Sometimes they think that he's not good at all because they feel like he should have gotten involved in things that he didn't get involved in. Where does this understanding, because John understood that God is love, but the average Westerner doesn't believe that God is love. Where's the disconnect? I think the disconnect is, is John Lennon. Because John Lennon had this view of the world that his actions and his feelings could be completely disconnected from each other. And, and I think that's, that's the problem. I think that we don't use God as our definition of love. We lose our, use our feelings as the definition of love. That's narcissistic. That's looking inside of yourself and going, I am, I, if you love me, you, you make me feel comfortable, you do the things I want, you agree with me. I'm coming back to that one. I have a whole part of the message just for that one. Right there. Real love loves me, agrees with me, comforts me, protects me. Real love's all about me. Now I know that sounds stupid. And I also know that's what most people believe. No matter how, a lot of times we never give words to the things we think or feel. And so we never get to experience how stupid they really are. 
But when you actually put words on them and realize that your definition of love is almost 100% defined by you, that messes you up. Because you're not the definition of love. God is the definition of love. The, in a world that defines love completely from a viewpoint of self, real love looks like hate. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, Paul's counsel is to, to imitate our Father. The antidote to the cancer of narcissism in this world is that God is love, not me. That's the antidote. So how am I going to get there? So let's get kind of practical about this. How am I going to imitate God? So Paul writes in Ephesians 3.18, this is part of an incredible prayer in Ephesians 3.14-21, through 21, but in verse 18 he says, May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love really is. If you can't let God love you, you're never going to have perspective on what love is. You're never going to be able to get at the definition of a word that did not originate on this planet. The word love originated with God before this planet existed. And so if you're ever going to get at the real definition, you have to get past the world you see with your eyes and into the world that this world came from. And you have to understand the definition is wrapped up in God Himself, the person of God, the nature of God, not just in what I feel. So how am I going to learn to love and experience God's love? So I'm going to give you two practical things. The first one is reflection, and the second one is practice or application. Reflection. So Pastor Steve right now has taken several of you guys through tempo, through the New Testament in 28 days. Um, I almost made a Noah's the Ark, Noah's Ark comparison, and I realized there wasn't one. So uh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> 28 days through the New Testament. It's kind of a quick trip, you know, 28 minutes a day. So as you go through that, that's a great thing to go through. You could probably still sign up. You'd just be a few days late, and you could go through these, uh, these daily readings with Pastor Steve. But as you... So I want you in the Word because what I want you to do in the Word is I want you to think about the God who wrote it to you. I want you to think about the God who wrote it to you. And so this is where reflection comes in. Here's when you read the Bible, instead of looking at it through the lens of you, of what God did or didn't do for you or how He, he uh, succeeded or disappointed you or whatever, those kind of things, I want you to think about some things. One, I'd like you to think about and reflect upon this. I want you to see how God always comes back. Like, like God, it's like he's not there, but then he comes back. God just keeps, no matter what his people do, no matter how dumb they are, no matter how they insult him, he keeps coming back. I just want you to reflect that God always keeps coming back. I want you to reflect on the fact that God always does what he says. He, does, he, he says he's going to do something, and he does that thing. He comes through, honors that thing. Reflect on God's mercy. I call it the great unknown of all eternity is God's mercy. I know what the Bible says is going to happen at the end times and, and when we meet God and all those kind of things, but there is still this reality that God is so ridiculously merciful. God is merciful. So I want you to think about, He always comes back. He does what He says. He, he's so full of mercy. And, and, and so 
if you begin to reflect on this, and then you begin to kind of apply those ideas. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead there. You begin to express those ideas. What if you begin to imitate God? And you, like, always come back. <sighs> like in relationships and in things that you're struggling with and people that you're struggling with, and we all have them. What if, you're, what if you start imitating God? Well, it broke. It went wrong. Things happened. What if you're the kind of person that with boundaries, like God, because God has boundaries, that like God, you always come back? What if like God, you were merciful? What if like God, you, you served and were sacrificial of other people? What if you just began to imitate some of those ideas and thoughts about God? Just start to act like God a little bit, because that's what it means to be godly. Now, I know a lot of you said, well, I'd like to act like God, like that movie, God, what was it, the one with Jim Carrey that I hated. Anyway, where you could just make the world do what you want. Well, if you, you're ever going to have influence to do things in the world, have influence on the world, you got to start by loving the world like God did. Sacrificing, laying yourself down like God did. So, I know you're all looking at me awkward right now. So, imitate God the Father. Then, think about love from the... From the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, Paul kind of lays this, this oh man, this story-like line of Jesus where Jesus kind of puts his divinity in a locker in heaven and comes to earth for us. And then he, he came to earth and for 33, uh, 30 years, he lived a pretty normal life filled with heartbreak and joys. But he seemed to be a pretty normal guy up until his baptism. And then he was baptized. The Spirit descended like a, a dove. I mean, God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, he came out of the water, went into the wilderness. When he came out of the wilderness, he came out victorious. And then he began to teach and he began to touch people. and He began to heal people. And he began to love people. And he began to listen and he began to understand. And for all of that... He got arrested, accused, condemned, beaten, crucified, and dead. Then, cool thing about Jesus is his story doesn't end at a grave. Three days later, which we'll celebrate Easter, he rose again. He came back because God's always coming back. You see, he rose again. Isn't that what love is? Isn't love rising again? Think about it. In your marriage, you guys have, have got several years behind you and you've gotten through, you've waded through some stuff. Didn't you have some nasty fights along the way? Didn't you take a few gut punches along the way? And what did you do? Eventually, you got up, shook it off, smacked each other again. Oh, no, no, that's, a, that's not right. And you, you start, you tried again. You came again. Your kids. I mean, seriously, should any child survive their teenage years? I shouldn't have. I don't know. Your kids may be amazing, but okay, my kids are pretty good. But, uh, and your kids are pretty good too, but I wasn't. Shouldn't have survived. My mother almost made sure it didn't. But long story, long story. My point is, is that isn't love taking the gut punches? And then shaking it off and coming back, rising again. 
a lot of times, sometimes with, with uh, new boundaries, sometimes with new approaches to things. But my point is, is that Jesus Christ, he did all these things. He set an example of what it would be to, to love people. So how did, so I like to think sometimes when I read the Bible, like how did those early listeners, because I, I don't know if you know how the Bible got around, but you know, Paul would write it on scraps of paper or, or those kind of things, and he would send it to the churches. They would read it in the churches, and you know, then it would get passed to other churches around, and then they would get copied. And just there's a whole long story, story of how the Bible. I mean, because it was, there was 300 years there, 350 almost that there wasn't a Bible for people to to have. You know, they didn't walk into church that first century with a Bible in their arm because it hadn't been written yet. You know, and it's hard to get to. And so how did that those early Christians respond to the stuff that Paul wrote. So I thought I'd share a couple things with you that just just come from history about how the early church responded to Im- what it meant to imitate God. So this is an account, and I, I can't remember the source right now. I do apologize for that, but this was a historical account, third century Christians. Still no Bible yet, not that you would have normally. And it says Christians, the report was that Christians were the only ones who cared for the sick, which they did at risk of contracting the plague themselves. Meanwhile, pagans were throwing infected members of their own families into the streets even before they died in order to protect themselves from the disease. So there was a plague in the third century, and the Christians were stepping up to care about people they didn't even know demonstrating, imitating God, laying down their lives for God. That's very loving and very sacrificial at a very high price, don't you think? And maybe you're familiar with this passage in Acts 2.44. This is right after the Holy Spirit had fallen, right after Peter's amazing message in Acts 2. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together in the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Doesn't that sound awesome? I mean, really, what moves people to change their lives like that? That they move their life from self-absorption and just surviving, which is, I'm sure, that's exactly how they live. And then all of a sudden, now they're together every day. They're They're listening to the apostles' teaching and trying to learn it. They're discussing it among themselves. They're praying with each other. They're fellowshipping. They're sharing food. They're selling things that they own to meet the needs of the community. Isn't that crazy? What would cause someone to change like that? Another one I'd like to share is from the Apology of Aristides. Uh, I think this is about third century as well. Uh, he's, he's writing a defense of Christianity to the king, and this is how it goes. I hope, I hope you can pay attention to this. I know it's, it's reading some things, but it, I think it's interesting. It says... Uh, Aristides is right, defending Christianity, and he was one. He says, wherefore, they do not commit adultery nor fornication. You might have to look those words up later. This is old, you know, way back there. Uh, Nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what's held in pledge, nor covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near to them. 
Their oppressors, they appease or they comfort them and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. And their, we, their women, O king, are as pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest, and their men keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness in the hope of a recompense to come in another world. And they do not proclaim in the ears of the multitude the kind deeds they do, but are careful that no one should notice them. These are weird people. These are awkward people. You know, as I was reading the Apology of Aristides, I was reminded, and this is a belief I've had for a long time, so maybe my bias was confirmed, I don't know, but I was reminded that morality in our world gets condemned as old-fashioned. But I'm here to tell you it's immorality that's old-fashioned. People have been immoral forever. And they've done things that have used and abused people since the sin in the garden. It's Christianity. It's Christ. It's morality based on those beliefs. That's the new thing. And so I know it may seem like, you know, parents are fuddy-duddies or maybe you think I am. And I never thought of myself that way. But I do think that morality is just decency toward other people, myself. So I just wanted you to see that in that early church, they had, a, they had ways of loving that are obvious. They were practical. They, they did things. And, and Paul wrapped it up nicely, 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. That's my favorite line. I hate that line. It keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. That's love. That's, a, it's, that's 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Uh, I don't know if it's in the study guide or not, but it is a powerful passage. It's a great way to define love. So, love is... An imitation of God, the Father God who is love. Love is the example of Jesus. And love is demonstrated in the early church. They laid down so much just to love the world they lived in. So love is powerful. Love is action. The feelings of love that we want. We want to feel love. They're powerful feelings, no doubt. But they come from actions. And that's what we have to remember. Actions create those powerful feelings. That's what love is. I thought I would take a minute and go just down a dark alley just for a second. You know, I, I like to be positive when I can. But I think we should also decide, we should know what love is not. What love is not. So the Bible says in Ephesians 5.3, so you'll notice that I'm, the, actually the background text for this whole message is Ephesians chapter 5. And we started in verses 1 or 2 and we talked about you know, having a life filled with love, following the example of Christ, imitating God. So verse 3 takes that lesson from love into kind of what love is not. And he says in verse 3, he says, Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. 
So what am, I, what am I saying? What is love not? Well, love is not using people. Love does not use people. This, we live in a world that that's what we think everything is. There's this, this idea that permeates our culture that makes everything about me that says you've got to love yourself. And you do. To the inclusion of those around you, not the exclusion of those around you. And so when we love in ways that just use other people, when our love is simply getting our own needs met, you have needs that do need to be met. It's just there are selfish ways to try and get those met. That's when we use people. Actually, it's, it's a form of idolatry because I cannot love you and use you. You can write that down. I cannot love you and use you at the same time. That's idolatry. And what I'm doing when I'm using people is I'm manipulating people. I'm trying to get what I need from them. And sometimes they're not included in that discussion. Sometimes it's a control thing. We're trying to control people all around us to try and get those needs met in our life. And those, those are going to lead you to frustration because that's not love. You're going to end up, you're going to stop, move from a Beatles song to a Mick Jagger song. I can't get no satisfaction because that's what's going to happen if you keep trying to use people. You're like, I didn't know he had such a broad music. I, I have Steve. Steve is my source. <sighs> you got to hear him tell you about the monkey. You got to hear his talk about the monkeys versus the Beatles. It's a great talk, but I'm going to let him do it. Be a great, I should have told you you could have done it today. Actually, it would have been a great fit. It would have annoyed all the Beatles fans, but still, all right. If you find yourself in relationships where you're using people, set them free. Or set yourself free. Using people's not okay. Ben Shapiro did a, uh, an article a couple of years ago on sex and how that it's been reduced to um, to mirror uh, like agreement, like consent. It's been reduced to consent. Thank you. I was trying. I couldn't pull that word up. And so, you know, Chris and I are doing a wedding conference this weekend, and so it's kind of refreshed this idea in my mind. But, man, intimacy, real intimacy, should never be as low a bar as mere consent. It should be the highest bar of actually covenant. And what do I mean by covenant? What I mean by covenant is, is that in order for there to be real intimacy, I have to be very vulnerable. I mean, sexual intimacy without the vulnerability is just using people. Intimacy is about being known and accepted in the deepest and most significant of ways. And so I believe God's intent was to wrap intimacy in this thing called covenant. What is covenant? Covenant is what the vows at a wedding ceremony are about. And basically the vows are, you know, I'm not going to go through the vows, but the vows are like, I, I love you no matter what happens. I'm staying with you, and if I figure out that what I have for you right now isn't love, I'm going to learn how to love you better. You know, I'm, No matter what happens, I'm here. This is a covenant we're making. You show me who you are, I'll show you who I am. We'll know each other better. We'll accept each other. We'll know and be known. That's intimacy. Covenant wraps around that thing. Uh, if I could rant just a second, I don't think the state has any place in marriage. I think that it's family and church. 
I think a family and a household and a, a church is what establishes covenant in the most powerful and significant way. That's Michael's opinion. You can disagree with me. A lot of people are wrong. You can be one of them. <sighs> the point of covenant is that I'm never going to use you. I'm going to know you. You're not going to use me. We're going to know each other. You get to be you. I need to be me. We both show up. It's a very powerful place. Love is never using people. Can you remember that? Love is never using people. Another thing you need to remember is love is not lying to people either. Now, you people that have lying wounds in your life, you know, that, that you see liars everywhere you go, uh, you, you need healing. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this. In order for there to be vulnerability, there has to be truth. There has to be truth. And so when I lie to you, I'm not telling you the truth. That's not love. Even if I, th- you know, <laughs> a lot of times, you know, well, I, I, I lied to him because I wanted to protect him. I, I, that's not healthy. Actually, that's the beginning of codependency. That's not a good relationship. Truth. Begins with, you know, I know that we disagree right now. It might look like this in your marriage. It might look like this. I know we disagree right now, uh, but I still love you. This is how I'm experiencing you. Not about, you know what you need to do? That's, that's not the truth. You, you never know what they need to do. You're the only person. I mean, seriously, there's only one mind in this room that hopefully you can read. And it's hopefully your own. I struggle with that. I told my wife one time, I can't even read my own mind, much less yours. So you got to tell me stuff, okay? Love means I tell you the truth. Love means I tell you the truth appropriate to our relationship. Like, I don't, like if, a, if an acquaintance, like someone I don't know very well, if they're here and they say, hey, Michael, how you doing? The appropriate response for my relationship with an acquaintance is probably, oh, I'm doing fine. Because that's not a request about my person. That is a greeting. However, if my wife says to me, how are you doing? I might need to have some vulnerability. Say, I'm not feeling it today. Or I might just want to tell her a little bit about where I'm at. You know, response to those kind of things. Truth. Truth can be shared. It can be shared within boundaries. You don't share the same truth with every level of relationship. But the point simply is this, love is not using people and love is not lying to people. And lastly, oh, you know, hang on, before I get to lastly, your hope, I got your hopes up, sorry. Uh, Romans twelve fifteen, the Bible says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Do you know what this verse requires? People to tell you when they're happy and when they're sad. That's what this verse requires. What does it take to get there? Vulnerability. You know, some people only tell you when they're sad. Those people are not fun to be around. Some people only tell you when they're happy. Those people are annoying to be around. Come on, let's be honest. You're always so happy. Here, leave me alone. Here's a coffee. Right? So, I just want you to know that vulnerability is very important. Love means... When it comes to the issue of truth, love means discovering some things about me so I can share them with you. A lot of the frustrations in your life are coming from expectations that you have that you have never discovered. 
Do you, have a, do you ever have problems in your relationships, maybe your marriage or with your kids, where, where that, that person, whether it's your spouse or your children, they are frustrating you? Do you, do you guys ever have, just by nod of the head, not, a, not too aggressive nodding, but just not, do you ever have frustration in your marriage or parenting? Just, no, don't overemphasize, okay. And, and, and how many of you are like, like this here? They're doing it on purpose. They are intentionally ruining my life. How many of you have ever had that thought? My wife hates me. My husband, he's trying to make me crazy. Okay, he probably is. But um, he knows that when you go crazy, he can get the new truck. Um, just kidding. Let me ask you a question. What if it really is, is that you have an expectation in your heart and in your history that you have never articulated in your own mind? That you've never admitted, I expect my spouse, my husband, my wife, I expect my kids, my parents, my boss, fill in the blank, is it possible that you might have an expectation that you've never actually attached words to? We should really think about this because I believe there's a lot of frustration in our life coming from unarticulated expectations. And I think if we could ever put words to them, one of two things would happen. The first thing that might happen is we go, oh, that's awful. I shouldn't want that. So that could happen. And then you would go, that's not who I am, and discard it. The other thing that might happen is you might actually be able to tell someone, this is what I want. And often I find that people who care about each other love to do things the other person wants to do. Not always. But I find that when we actually get those things out, it's very healthy. Does that make sense? Love isn't lying. And holding those things in. And the last thing, and I'll keep this short, love isn't agreement. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. I literally read a comment to a, a, an article a few weeks ago where a young man said, he said, if you love me, you would agree with me. That's stupid. Because the person who wrote it could have turned around and said, well, if you love me, you would agree with me. Right? That assumption leads us to believe that if... It leads us to a point where, the, where other people are not allowed to speak in our lives. You can't show up and be my friend. There's only room for one person in this relationship, and that's me. Does that sound healthy at all? Love can never be agreement. It, it can't be using people. It can't be lying and it can't be agreement. And so really all I wanted to say about that was love is an agreement. That's it. Done write it down, it's over. I won that argument with myself. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she'll be holy and without fault. That's how Jesus loves the church. Love has a focus. Love has a purpose. Love has a gift. I wanted to wrap this message up. I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense, really, that the love that Jesus is talking about is countercultural in the world that you live in. That actually makes a lot of sense. 
And so wrapping up this series with the idea of love, I, I don't think anyone would argue with, it, with the idea of love. I think the issue is how do we love people? I think that's how am I loving and yet maintain my identity, especially in a world that thinks the only way I can love it is to agree with it. So I can, I can smash that. I can, I can bash, and, and not bash, but I can, I can throw away, I'm not going to use people. I'm not going to lie to people. And I'm not going to use agreement as a definition of love. Those things are invalid. They're not true. But what I can do is I can imitate my Father God. I can keep coming back. I can be merciful. I can sacrifice and lay down. I can, I can, I can do it. I might have to do it messy. Love is messy. I mean, yeah, who, who doesn't have a couple kids running around? It's not messy. Or, or that first year of marriage when he hasn't learned not to hang his underwear on the chandelier yet. I mean, it's not messy, you know. I mean, it's messy. Love is messy. But it's consistent too, isn't it? I keep coming back. I keep standing up. I keep taking the fight. I, I keep, I'm fighting for this. That's what love is. So here's, I wanted today, I wanted to give you something to do with this. Something to do. You're like, oh, great. More homework. From church. That's great. Yeah. Worship team, if I get you guys to come forward. Steve, if you play whenever you're ready to start playing. We're going to stand. We're going to worship a couple songs. But what I want to ask you to do, what I want to challenge you to do, and it's kind of a small, intimate crowd today, so that makes it easier and more uncomfortable at the same time. Is there anyone... In this room or in your life, because you have that, that thing in your, ha- your pocket, maybe your hand, you could send a text or something. Is there anyone today that you need to give love to? Is there anyone you need to set free? Is there anyone you need to say, maybe, maybe a wife might say to her husband, you know, I really respect you. You have been faithful to this family for so many years and faithful to that job that you're not nuts about. Maybe it'd be a husband say to his wife, I really love you. Your beauty captivated me the very first time I saw you. I knew I'd never get enough of you as a person in my life. Maybe it's a parent. You're like, man, I want you to be you. I I didn't raise you to be me. And I want to set you free to be everything God wants you to be. There there might be all kinds of things rolling around your heart, but how can you give love to someone today? Maybe it's someone in this room. Maybe it's someone you could reach out to via text or call after this meeting. But let's stand. Father God, I want to release a spirit of love on this room, a spirit of doing something. And I pray, God, that you would give us the grace to do something. To somehow commit an act of love to people in our lives, to people we care about, to people that that mean so much to us. And Lord, I also want to pray. I know that there are people likely in this room, maybe tuning in online, that they really don't feel a lot of love in their life right now. It is a horrible place to feel unloved, uncared for, and unknown. Lord, I I just want to banish that in Jesus' name. 
And I want every life to know that they are loved. Yes, by our Father God. Yes, by the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. But also by their body, this G, by the body of Jesus here. By their friends. I pray, Lord God, that if you bring to our mind anyone who is needing love, that we take an action today. I pray these things and release these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If I can pray with you, I'll be over here on my right. Pastor Steve.